I'm Katie. I'm Vinny. And this is Learn Real Good. A podcast. About science. <laughs> Where we introduce our guests and talk about their work. But first, we shoot the breeze and share some facts. That's what we're all about at Learn Real Good. <laughs> oh, I like that voice. <laughs> Do you? Nah. It's my natural voice. <laughs> it's your natural speaking voice. Yes, my speaking voice. <laughs> So what's new, Vinny? What's on your mind right now? You know now, what? It's just been, it's been so cold. Uh, we're mm. recording this in the early days of February, but for the last two weeks in Montreal, it has been just Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. Really cold. Really bitterly cold. Yeah. Not, the, not and the nice. wind is not mm. cool. It is cold. <laughs> it is being powerfully uncool. Do you like winter in general? I love winter in general. I love okay. the snow. I love the sun. It's a sunny winter. It's not like a cloudy, <laughs> rainy winter. Uh, and oh. when it's bright and sunny, you know it's cold. But, you know, if you stay inside, that's fine. But this is too cold. You can't even go out. So my frame of reference for Canadian winters, I did my undergrad in London, Ontario. Right. And that was my least of favorite of the winters because it was so wet all the time. And like walking through campus, there were just slush puddles all the time. And they used right. so much salt out there. I just remember like salt water wicking up my pants, to like oh, my no. knees. And then they'd be stiff by the time you're leaving class. And like I went through so many pants, just destroyed by that saline solution. And I had to trudge through. I hated that. Yeah, we don't salt our roads or streets No, we're sand people. Yeah, sand. <laughs> we are the sand people. And then there's Edmonton that does nothing because it's just too cold. <laughs> right. You've not snowy enough. You told me about the ruts, the, the road ruts. Yeah. Because they don't clear their streets. Well, so, yeah. So I did a degree in Edmonton and a lot of the people I knew in my lab were from like Ontario, Quebec. And so the seasoned Albertans would have to <laughs> explain the snow removal situation in Edmonton, which was they didn't. It snowed <laughs> so infrequently, it didn't make sense to have the, all those snow trucks and such. So there'd be like a foot of snow in December and you're like, when are they going to come plow this? And the answer is never. And so just over time, you sort of pressurize and compress it. So the roads get these like railroad tracks, basically. So when you have to switch lanes, you have to like rev up it's it's a wild ride you swing back and forth in the ruts and you <laughs> yeah. have to like basically jump tracks yes it's like wow. it's the real wild west when it comes to winter <laughs> i mean montreal it, it's cold yes. but the snow removal is top notch it's unprecedented you know you have like crazy snows and then you hear on the news like we have our five-day plan all the snow will be removed in five days. Yeah. <laughs> it's intense yeah a whole city like giant streets are all cleared of snow both sides, parking, everything, the whole snow just gets erased from the city. It's very impressive. But also the trucks. Like, that. that is something oh, I don't the know. the ballet of trucks and snow plows? <laughs> that needs to be explained because trucks come by before plowing your street and have this honk that sounds like a goose. Oh, the, the <laughs> tow trucks. The tow trucks. So, yeah, the first step is yeah. tow trucks. If you are in a zone and your car is parked on the street where they're, they're about to plow... Uh, the tow trucks come by and go wee wee wee, and it'll wake you up. It will rattle your bones. You cannot function as a human being while that sound is going on. Yeah, but that that doesn't happen. I've I've never been anywhere else where that happens. That's not a regular thing. It's very startling when you're new to this town. Uh, and so then once they're done, uh, any cars that are left there, if you haven't heard the alarm to move your car, they will tow it away. So they, mm -hmm. I'm sure they tow hundreds of cars every winter crazy uh, and then the snow plows come and well first the mini plows come to pile up all the snow into it's a whole thing a large like little row of of snow and then the big plows come and then the trucks go beside it so that the plow can 
put it in the truck. Then another truck replaces that truck when it's full. It's this whole process. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Anyways, that's amazing. Yeah. There's movies. There's a documentary about it. Is there? Yeah. Oh. Of a Montreal snowmobile? I didn't know there was a documentary. Okay, well, after well, this podcast, we have more homework. Yeah. But first. Yes. We must continue what we've started. And that is sharing facts. Fact time. <laughs> <laughs> Who goes first? Uh, Here are you. You go first. Oh, thank you. Um, So my fact is an interesting one. And it kind of... It led me down a bit of a wild goose chase. No, yeah. a rabbit hole. That's okay. the one. <laughs> a wild goose hole um, of, of facts and memories. But let's get started with the facts, shall we? So yeah. this comes out of a recent trial that took place in Malawi, where they have one of the highest rates of premature births in the world. And a fascinating way to reduce that, they found, was to chew sugar-free chewing gum twice a day chewing gum chewing gum twice a day sugar-free because the sugar brings its own suite of health issues during pregnancy was linked to a drop in premature births that was statistically significant now do you have any ideas to why that might be uh the chewing motion (laughs) of the gum and the jaw relaxes the whole body well, you know, some people take their oral health for granted and think it's a, you know, a cosmetic issue, but it has a lot to do with your immune system. Oh. And not improper and insufficient oral health will lead to infection. So oh. what will happen is if you don't floss, if you don't brush, if you don't take care of your gums, right. that bacteria builds up, it gets into your bloodstream, it goes to your heart, it Whoa. causes all sorts of serious health impacts and can travel from a pregnant woman to the fetus. Wow. Yeah. Um, And this led me to remembering in the distant past as a child watching an Oprah episode Mm. where she had some specialist on who talked about like surprising things that have huge consequences on your health. And I just remember since then that like if you floss, that basically adds four years to your life compared to someone who's exactly the same who does not floss. Well, it's a difference of four years oh, four is years. the point. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to add those four years. <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah, we, not, not, oh, not the greatest flosser. We're not great flossers. I'll floss here and there. Yeah. You know, eat some corn. You got to floss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're down for a post-corn floss. You got to. You got yeah, to. But we're not daily flossers. So that's no, t- TMI. Sorry, everybody. Anyway, it was funny enough. I was able to find who this person was. <laughs> I just Googled like oh. Oprah. <laughs> flossing yeah extending your life guy and wanted to follow them on instagram no i'm just curious anyway i found them dr thomas pearls who's sort of famous for creating this list of questions okay that allows you to sort of determine your likely lifespan and so i did that this afternoon i did the okay (laughs) yes and i'm happy to report i will live till i'm 88 which i feel is that's a good age that's a good age yeah so if an anvil falls on my head next week i'm gonna be pissed at this guy (laughs) You can hold them responsible. <laughs> no flossing required. 88? I don't need to be 92. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. If that's the difference. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to just fill this with toffee. <laughs> <laughs> just replace your teeth as they fall out with toffee. <laughs> with chiclets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. What a great fact. Wow. So yeah, dental 
dental mm-hmm. hygiene impacting uh, infant birth. Well, what's uh, interesting is they sort of controlled for, I guess, the potential of them being tipped off, that chewing gum, having something to do with oral health that might have led to other changes. They sort of gave the two sets, the control set and the people who were given the chewing gum, a lesson on proper oral hygiene. So they got the same sort of instruction, but one got gum to chew and the other didn't. Mm. And so it still had a significant difference. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. They're now going to try to extend it to other parts of the world. That's very cool. Um, are yeah. you? A simple solution, too. Just some gum. Sugar-free gum. <laughs> well, it doesn't fix the problem. Fixed it. But it reduces it. Brought to you by Big Gum. <laughs> yeah. Try to make it out like bandits here. All right. All right. You want to hear Bring some other facts? Well, mine's a space fact again. I love space facts. Yeah, give you a space fact. Um, So, you're familiar with the moon. <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. And it's a big ball of rock up in the sky. Now, the Earth... <laughs> yeah, you're laughing already. So far, so good. So far as you're following. Yeah, yeah. yeah good. Mm-hmm. Big rock. Familiar it. with it. Yep. Uh, the Earth is big compared to a person, but the moon is big compared to the Earth. Most moons aren't right. as huge compared to the planet that it orbits around. As big as the moon. Like the moon is bigger than some of the planets. Like it's it's mm-hmm. huge. You know, uh, Pluto, not a planet, but does have like a very large companion uh Body that orbits around it, not a moon. Do we know their companions? Has that been verified? Well, there's no, they haven't registered any of City Hall, but okay. they orbit around one another. Sure. Um, but the size of the moon has a huge impact mm. on so much of what happens here on Earth. And a lot of scientists speculate that it may have like a significant uh, effect on life developing on Earth. Okay. Uh, two factors, one being uh, the tides. Tides are controlled mm. by the moon. And without a, a moon as big as the one that we have, the tides would not be anywhere near as strong and so a lot of people believe that the moon and the tides set the rhythm for a lot of life cycles and Mm. and circadian not just the light of the sun and the moon because that can alter over the course of the year but also the rhythm of the tides and that is much Mm. more steady over the course of the year Hmm. the second thing that it does is that it stabilizes the earth's rotation Oh. And so the Earth spins around mm-hmm. once a day. Every day we do a full little wibble all that. the way around. But the axis, the North Pole that we spin around, North-South axis, Wobble. w- wobbles. Yeah. There's a wobble to it. So like where it points right now is the North Star, but that changes. And it spins. It's called pro- procession. And so the spin of the Earth processes uh, around uh, another axis. But the moon stabilizes it. Mm. It would be much more spinny like a top you know like a top it starts to lose momentum it wobbles a lot and the earth would be a lot more like that so the fact that the moon is so big it means that wobble is greatly reduced by the size of the moon Hmm. and so one of the things that's really cool is that researchers have been looking into how does the moon get formed and so the earth being roughly 4.5 billion years that's our best estimate and the moon being roughly 4.4 billion years so just a little Ah, bit younger and the current leading theory is that something the size of mars which is about half the size of earth has smashed into Mm. a early version of earth and so Mm. the this early version of earth Plus, uh, this body roughly half this uh, roughly the size of Mars together creates the mass of the Earth and Moon right now. Gotcha. Uh, and if you do other types of collisions, you don't get an Earth Moon system. So that's what these researchers looked into. What if the Earth is bigger? What if the colliding object is smaller or bigger? What if one of them is made of ice instead of rock? And so the thing that smashed into the Earth was made of rock. 
And what they found was if your planet is too big compared to the thing that smashes into it, it just vaporizes it and you mm. don't get a moon. You just get a bunch of dust and then it all falls down to the planet and you get no moon whatsoever. If the colliding object is too big, it just forms like small tiny moons. So the colliding object and the object it collides into have to be just the right size to get an Earth and moon system hmm. of that ratio. Otherwise, the moons are too small or you get no moon whatsoever. So Earth is in one of the very Goldilocks situations for the life that did develop here, which isn't to say that life couldn't evolve without a moon, but it certainly is likely to be a factor. Now, I'm still hung up on something you said earlier. Yeah, what is it? The Earth and moon was one rock? Picture little Earth, little baby yeah, yeah. Earth. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, going around the sun. I appreciate that. Yeah, and then something about the size of Mars, like, oh, I'm coming in, look out, mm-hmm. smash, they smash together. Mm-hmm. A bunch of it comes back together as the Earth. It's like, oh, hello, now I'm the Earth. And then some of it forms the moon. Mm. So those two bodies are from the sum of the body that was the Earth and the thing that collided into it. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Good job, moon. So you're saying you were pro-moon appreciation day, is what you're the saying? The moon is incredible. Like, we wouldn't have it without a very precise series of events happening. People don't know that Vinny has a giant moon tattoo that covers his entire back. Yeah. It's from Majora's Mask. It's got a big angry face on it. That's enough tomfoolery for right, us. It's fine. time to talk to a proper scientist, shall we? Yes, let's. Okay, well, please introduce our guest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's say hello to Emily McGaw, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of Dr. Nostro at the McEwen Stem Cell Institute in Toronto. She obtained her PhD in physiology from the University of Toronto this past fall. The focus of Emily's research is to understand how pluripotent stem cells can be turned into, or differentiated into, <laughs> insulin-producing beta cells in the lab for patients living with type 1 diabetes. Emily likes running, competing in triathlons, and spending time with her niece and nephew. Aww. And fun fact about Emily, <laughs> on her birthday, she runs the same number of kilometers as the age she is turning. That's amazing. That's a, that is pretty amazing. Hello, Emily. Hello. Thanks for having me. Woo! Thanks for being here, Emily. Glad you could take a break from running to join us. Of course, I'm happy to. <laughs> wow, this research, this is comp- this is complicated. I'm going to guess that Vinny doesn't know what a lot of these words mean. I understood the word cells. <laughs> That's okay. That's all I understood too when I first started. <laughs> Real talk. Appreciate yeah. that. So how about we start with what what is a stem cell? How is it different from a regular old skin cell? Sure. So the type of cells that we use in the lab, uh, they're called pluripotent stem cells. Uh, So pluripotent essentially means that the cells that we have in the lab can become any cell of the entire body. So these cells, you can get them from uh, a variety of different sources. One source is that you can take them directly from an embryo. So as an embryo is forming, there's something called the inner cell mass. And it's the cells of the inner cell mass that are pluripotent. And again, pluripotent just means it can become any cell of the body. Mm. So you can either take these or get these cells from an embryo or scientists have actually discovered ways to turn um, an adult cell. So an adult cell is something like a skin cell and to revert them back in time to become pluripotent. So there are different ways to have pluripotent cells in the lab, and we have cells uh, through both ways. So we grow cells that can become any cell of the body, but we specifically want to make the insulin cells. So we will will get to that, but I'm still hung up on these stem cells. 
So you, you differentiate pluripotent from other stem cells because some stem cells can't become anything? Like there's a narrow range of things they can be? Uh, exactly. So, well, there are different types of stem cells. So uh, we mainly work with, or we work with pluripotent. The other is totipotent, which means it can become all cells of the body plus uh, extra embryonic or like placenta. Um, so we don't work with these cells, but a totipotent could essentially become an entire human being. Whereas the mm. cells that we make in the lab, they can become every organ of the body, but not an entire human being because we're not making like the placenta. Um, there's also another type of stem cell called multipotent. And this is restricted to the type of cells it can become. It can't become any cell of the entire body. But for instance, um, there might be a multipotent pancreatic cell, which means it can only become cell types mm. of the pancreas. So it's restricted. Right. So it's kind of like subsets. So you can have a, what's the first one? Totipotent is exactly. like anything. Yeah. And then pluripotent and then multipotent. You've got it, Vinny. Okay, great. So they're like basically larger large sets that become less various sets of cells and then even less exactly. uh, diverse types of cells. Okay, great. And so do we have all of these types of cells as adults or do we lose them? Do we lose the ability to, to make these kind of stem cells? So as, a, as an embryo develops, they start off as pluripotent stem cells. And as soon as these cells start to differentiate, and differentiate just means essentially grow or turn into something else. As soon as pluripotent stem cells start to differentiate as an embryo is developing, they lose their pluripotency. They still may retain and likely do retain at very early stages their multipotent capacity, um, but they lose pluripotency. They've lost completely totipotent. So the most they can have at that part is uh, is multipotent. Okay. But some cells may even lose multipotency and just become very restricted to the cell type they are. Hmm. And do we know, Emily, how like what is changing about a cell for it to change its potentness? Yeah, does it just get like, lazy? Is it a DNA change? <laughs> it gets is it tired. A regulation of gene expression change? Like what what is different about it? Do we know that? Essentially, all of those things that you mentioned, and a lot of research is going into figuring hmm. out exactly what's required to turn the pluripotent cell into the cell type of interest. There are a lot of changes going on within the cell and a lot of research is going down into the nitty gritty, trying to figure out which signaling pathways are, are regulating this process. So there are many different things uh, that's going on during this time. That's fascinating. It's like uh, a student graduating and then it's like, <laughs> well, what field do you want to major in? And it's like, I want to major in <laughs> biology. Yeah. And then it's like, I'm studying biology. And he's like, great, I am a biologist. And then mm -hmm. we're like, no, nah, we need you to go back and start over. We want you to turn into a, a like a, a civil engineer. And then it's like, well, no, I already studied. And so your job is to tell them, no, go back to being a grad student, and we want you to study civil engineering. Exactly. And we lecture cells. That's what she does. She yeah. lectures cells. <laughs> so you mentioned, Emily, that people have discovered how you can sort of go backwards in potency. How, how does that happen in very, if it's possible, basic terms? Uh, so my research specifically doesn't uh, look into this. I mean, we're when we use cells that uh, it's called induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, so IPSC, so you're inducing pluripotency back into the cells. So there were scientists, uh, Yamanaka, who discovered this, I think it was 2006, I'm sure someone can fact check that, um, but he identified transcription factors. So things that can change uh, part of the cell to kind of revert it back into its younger mm -hmm. self in a sense. 
So there, there are transcription factors, and there are four main transcription factors that Yamanaka identified that you need to add to your adult cell. So you add these transcription factors to your skin cell, and then uh, it integrates into the DNA, and then it reverts back in time to a pluripotent state. So that's like when you have, like at least with an Apple computer, if something goes wrong or you delete a document, you can sort of reset it to the previous day and that restores the well, document like sort of indirectly. Kind of yeah. Like that, right? I'm trying to get on Vinny's analogy train. It's something probably very similar to that. <laughs> I got, okay, Emily said it's exactly that. <laughs> and so your specialty is insulin and the beta cells that, that produce them. Exactly. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out how to turn this pluripotent stem cell, a cell that can become literally any organ of your entire body. How do you specifically make not only pancreatic cells, but just the insulin cells that lie within the pancreas? So this process occurs in like women during pregnancy when they're growing an embryo or a fetus inside of them. This occurs over nine months and we're trying to do it in the lab in a much more efficient process. Right. Wow. That's fascinating. So yeah, let's talk about insulin. What's insulin? Sure. Uh, <laughs> so insulin is uh, it's a hormone. So essentially a hormone is, it's like a messenger that tells your body to do something. So insulin is important because it tells our body to take glucose from our blood and give it to the cells of our body. So when you eat food that has glucose or sugar, so glucose is kind of like another name for sugar. When you eat food, sugar goes into your bloodstream uh, the cells of our body need sugar to function. So we can't survive without glucose, without sugar. So insulin will tell the will tell the cells to take the glucose from the blood. So when you have type 1 diabetes, you don't produce insulin. So if you can picture what's going on, if someone has type 1 diabetes, they're eating food, sugar is going into their bloodstream, it's staying in their bloodstream. The cells of their body are not taking this uh, glucose up. So what this means is that the glucose is staying in the blood, so they have high blood sugar. So hyperglycemia. So basically, it's like when you're in the office. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Okay, time. I'm ready. It's when you're in the office, it's Joanna's birthday, there's cake in the mm. communal room, mm -hmm. and everyone's like, there's an email that goes out. Hey, everybody, there's cake in the room if uh -oh. you want some. Watch out. But if you don't have insulin, you mm. don't get that email. You don't get to have the birthday cake. <laughs> Let's cut that one. <laughs> That's tricky because cake is also something that will cause your insulin to spike. But I mean, the cells are the people in the office and they don't get to have the cake if they don't get the email. I don't think we're quite there. <laughs> Emily, can I ask why? It, so having this sugar build up in your bloodstream do you know why that's bad is it more that it means that our cells aren't getting the glucose they need to make energy or is it more that sugary blood in and of itself is bad like it becomes all mm. thick and doesn't move or is it both or neither or what's going on i'd say it's both but sugary blood or hyperglycemia can uh, lead to a number of complications such as kidney failure blindness amputation even and sometimes even death so uh, when I guess so insulin was discovered 100 years ago, but prior to that, when children had uh, type 1 diabetes, a lot of them would die quite early on because they, you can't like live with high blood sugar. Fascinating. And uh, so there's a type 1 diabetes and there's a type 2 diabetes. Right. So let's talk about the distinction because sure. I don't know them. <laughs> so type 1 diabetes actually accounts for about 5 to 10% of all cases of diabetes, whereas Whoa. type 2 diabetes accounts for about 90%. So 
The prevalence of type 2 is much greater. Um, so like I said, type 1 is when patients, they're not making insulin. For type 2, they're making insulin, but they're not using it properly or they're not responding to it properly. So there is quite a difference in terms of how these diseases essentially exist. And so our what we're trying to do in the lab when we make insulin cells, primarily we focus on type 1 diabetes just because insulin is their only source. They use like needle or they inject themselves with insulin. But we also think that uh, insulin cells could also be helpful for some people who live with type 2 diabetes who are also on exogenous insulin or who else who also are injecting themselves with insulin. And would that be because, well, if you have type 2 diabetes and that's because for you, like the receptors or whatever on your cells aren't super great by getting these new beta cells that you make, it sort of suddenly will jumpstart a response or? We don't think it necessarily will change the receptors that are responding to insulin. I think there are other drugs um, and other researchers that are that focus on that to make cells more sensitive to insulin. But if a patient uh, requires insulin injections and our cells make insulin and can regulate mm. insulin accordingly, then we think that our cells might be able to help patients with type 2 diabetes. That's amazing. But primarily our focus right now is type 1. Yeah. And so what's, what's, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you turn, uh, first, how do you get a cell? How do you turn it into a stem cell? Then how do you make that stem cell into a beta cell? So a lot of our, so I guess the thing about stem cells or pluripotent stem cells, they have two unique characteristics. One is that it can divide indefinitely. So mm -hmm. you have one stem cell, it keeps dividing. So theoretically in the lab, we have an unlimited supply of stem, of stem cells. Nice. So the source of stem cells for us isn't a problem. And in fact, a lot of the stem cell lines and by stem cell lines, I mean, uh, because pluripotent stem cells come from either an embryo or like an adult cell that's been induced to generate, these are different lines. So one embryo is one stem cell line. You have another embryo that's a different stem cell line. So a lot of our stem cell lines, uh, we actually received or we have had for about 30 or more years. So these cells, they keep duplicating. We're not going to run out of them. And uh, the other characteristic is that, like I said, they can become any cell type of the body. And this is where it becomes tricky. And this is what part of my thesis was focused on is how do we do this? How do you take a process that takes nine months uh, during human development? Um, and right now, uh, scientists in the diabetes field are able to generate insulin cells in about 15 to 25 days. So we're trying to like speed up this process and figure out exactly what's required to make them. And so I guess, yeah, how do you, how do we make them? The 15 day, yeah. What's the 15 day process? Is it like, like cheering them on and be like, go stem cells. <laughs> right. Yeah, I def definitely do that. Although I'm not sure how helpful that is, but I do do that. <laughs> um, so what we do in the lab and a lot of this work is actually like, I was lucky to come in during a time when scientists before me have already discovered how to make certain cell types. So there are, there are three different germ layers that make up our body. So three different types of cells that make up our body. And the first or the three of them are endoderm and endoderm is like all the internal organs, like liver, lung, pancreas. So I'm interested in endoderm because endoderm gives rise to the pancreas. The other is ectoderm which gives rise to like nerve cells or skin cells, and then mesoderm, which gives rise to muscle or kidney or the heart. So what we try to do is we take our pluripotent stem cells through stages or steps of development that would normally occur during human development. So the first step is to make either endoderm 
ectoderm or mesoderm. So there are scientists before me who discovered mm -hmm. ways to do this. And they found out strategies to do this by studying um, other model organisms like mice or chicks. And the reason is because uh, for ethical reasons, it's very difficult to study human embryonic development. So a lot of the ideas that scientists had before me was to study, let's say mice. So they would figure out what are pluripotent stem cells in mice? What kind of environment are they experiencing to turn a pluripotent stem cell into endoderm or mesoderm or ectoderm? When I entered the lab, uh, we were already able to make endoderm. So that's that first step. Then we start to specify into the different organs. So endoderm, just sim for simplicity, endoderm can give rise to the stomach, the pancreas, or the intestine, as well as many other organs. So at some point, a cell is going to need to decide, is it going to become uh, the stomach, the pancreas, or the intestine? So scientists are then looking at mice, looking and trying to figure out what different proteins, what different environment is a mm. cell uh, being exposed to that allows them oh, wow. to be pushed towards the pancreas as opposed mm. to the stomach or the intestine. So in the lab, we test lots of different proteins. We activate or inhibit different signaling pathways. So we kind of try to change what's going on within the cells to figure out uh, how to turn them into pancreatic cells and then how to turn them into insulin cells. Wow, so it's a bit of like a wordle. Yeah, except <laughs> we get a bit more than six tries. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for yeah, that. Yeah. Okay, and so, so what happens after you make, you successfully convince them to be pancreatic cells and specifically beta over the alpha cells somehow? Now you have a pile of cells. What do you do then? Right. So I think it was around 2014, uh, scientists have developed or uh, came up with a protocol that was able to generate a relatively efficient number of insulin producing cells. So since 2014, we've now been able to make insulin producing cells. But as we begin to develop technology, we've tried or we've, we now have new technology that's allowed us to study our cells better. So as we make these cells, we also need to study them to make sure they are in fact proper insulin producing cells. And these cells um, are called beta cells. So beta cells are the cells that make insulin in the pancreas. So although we can make insulin cells, sometimes these cells express other things that we don't want, like glucagon. Um, so now we're trying to figure out exactly what type of insulin producing cells we've made and we can test them so we can characterize them in vitro which means in a dish or in the lab so we have uh, you can do something like single cell sequencing so you look at a single cell level and try to figure out what each cell expresses um you can also look at how the cells function by putting them in a mouse so we're starting to figure out exactly what type of cells we are making um, and as a result of all of this effort that's going into figuring out what we have made, clinical trials have now been launched to see how these cells function or how they develop and grow in humans. That's wild. Yeah, this is amazing. So, so what was sort of the end of your thesis? You're like, here's, here's the Petri dish of cells. Like, did, did, <laughs> did your thesis go into in, in, installing them, installing them into mice or, or humans? So uh, for my thesis, my main project was to look at one specific protein. So there are thousands of different proteins wow. to look at. I looked at one of them at um, one specific stage of development. So if making insulin cells is a seven stage process. I looked specifically at stage three 
and at one protein. So my, my project actually was to figure out how a cell or what dictates whether a cell becomes a stomach, pancreas, or intestine. So I looked at this one protein to see if I stimulated it, did it become a stomach or a pancreas? And if I inhibited it, what happened? So that was the main work of my thesis. Um, and then I have oh, cool. side projects where I try to generate essentially more uh, insulin cells in a dish. And what was this magical protein? Was it like a structural component of the pancreas or what was, what was it up to? Uh, it's called FGF, so fibroblast growth factor. I know that probably doesn't mean too much for anyone listening, uh, but we found that this protein was expressed by pancreatic cells. Um, so some in research, you find a protein, you see that your cells express it. You don't know exactly what it does, so you figure huh. it out. So before uh, I looked into it, we didn't know what it was going to do, but now we just know a little bit more about it, but still not everything. That's awesome. Well, we need to give work to the future generations, right, Emily? Exactly. (laughs) I didn't want to steal the excitement from someone else. You can't do everything. You can't. Do you have like a big framed uh, computer generated image of this protein on your wall? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Let's fix that. Wow. And so you got into this research from a, for a personal story, eh? Emily, do you want to talk about sure, that? Sure, yeah. So when I was in undergrad, I was doing, I was at York University and uh, I did in biomedical science. So I, I liked science. Um, I wasn't a huge fan at the time of research. Uh, I guess I just hadn't really been exposed much to it or like high school mm. research experiments weren't very exciting. I feel like we had a styrofoam cup, bit of water. I'm <laughs> not quite sure what was going on. Um, But during my first year of undergrad, I remember my mom phoned me one day and she said my sister was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I had no idea what this meant, like literally no idea. I think it had something to do with insulin, but I still wasn't sure. So since that day that uh, I found out my sister had type 1 diabetes, I then tried to learn as much as I could about Mm. type 1 diabetes, which then uh, brought me to... Uh, learning about different research that was ongoing. And that's actually when I was introduced to Dr. Nostro, which is my current supervisor. So I met Dr. Nostro, I guess, in, I don't know what year it would have been, maybe like eight years ago. Uh, So I approached her shortly after my sister was diagnosed and I started in her lab as a summer student. And then I've stayed in her lab ever since. Wow. What a beautiful story. And a nice reminder too, to any listeners out there that you never know when you're the inspiration will strike, right? You you didn't, you didn't go into university loving research and knowing you wanted to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And unfortunately I told my sister I was going to cure her diabetes, which is why I still (laughs) haven't been able to leave the lab. (laughs) The bold Claim. Well, yeah, you, yeah, I was so naive gold. at the time. I should have yeah. should have been careful. <laughs> Every year on her birthday, she's like Emily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every year we celebrate the day she was diagnosed with diabetes. So uh, it was ten years this year. So every year she looks at me oh. and wonders when the cure is coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No pressure. (laughs) Wow. Well, you're trying. I mean, uh, by all accounts, you're doing the best you can with this. You made progress. (laughs) Most people who'd make that promise have done nothing. (laughs) Like my brothers. Yeah. Yeah. What have they done? I love this family. All the the goths were like, no, I'm going to cure it. (laughs) I'm not in science at all, and I'm going to figure this out. That's awesome. Amazing. And so you're, you're, so you've moved on, you finished, you're a doctor. 
What are you working on now as a postdoctoral fellow? Well, of course, still trying to cure diabetes. <laughs> yeah. Your sister Wait, you're will not let listening you to me? That. I just said we didn't yeah. cure it yet. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not done. <laughs> um, no, but so I'm finishing off. Um, I need to publish my work from my, uh, my PhD, so my thesis. Um, so I will publish that shortly. Uh, and then I'm trying to figure out uh, what to do next. So I'd like to still be involved in science in some way and hopefully helping scientific discoveries get pushed to the clinic. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between a thesis and publishing your results? So you've done Ooh, yeah. you've done your PhD. You sound like years. my mom right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, there are people listening to this who probably don't know the difference yeah. of like what that means. Um, because yeah, let's talk about what a thesis is and why you have to publish it afterwards. Sure. So when you're in science, you're you're trying to publish papers. So a lot of your research or as much of as much of your research as possible, you want to publish in papers because this is what the majority of the world or whoever wants to read scientific papers is going to see. That is what uh, your goal is. And now as a postdoc, uh, that's my goal as well. As a postdoc, I don't have a thesis project. I've already done that in my PhD. So I'm not focused on a thesis. But when I was doing my PhD, your goal to graduate is to generate a thesis, which is a wonderful 200-page document <laughs> that everybody wants to read. Yes. And um, so for in order to graduate, I had to write a 200-page document. That's my thesis. Within my thesis are experiments that will then be published in a paper in journals, in a scientific journal. So the experiments that were done and will be published in both are very similar. They may have different styles of how you, or they definitely do have different styles of how you write them and how you kind of tell the story or scientific story. But yeah, so it's just, the thesis just really belongs to something that's specific to a PhD or like a master's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you basically have to like tell the school, like, here's what I did. And the school's like, you did a great job. Here's a degree. Exactly. But no one, no one really outside of the school really gets to look at that because it's not published anywhere. Well, they will get published online, so they are actually available. Yes. Yes. But they're, but people look at the journals for primarily the journals will be looked at, and part of the reason is, or maybe it's because they need to be uh, like peer reviewed or edited. Uh, so my thesis, I did have a committee who read my thesis, but there are other people when you publish a journal, one, the journal needs to accept it. And two, there are reviewers who will review your scientific work. Um, that process isn't applied to a thesis. And so you're in the process of organizing the stuff that you did for your thesis into papers to submit to journals, which will then be hopefully accepted, then reviewed, then you'll do an edit, and then it will show up somewhere. Exactly. So I'm taking my 200-page document and putting it into five pages, maybe. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, it's quite the quite the long journey, and then it's it once you submit it, it's months to hear back, and then months to get revisions, and then the whole thing. It's like kind of like movies. I always compare it to like to actors are in a movie, and then the movie comes out years later. They've right. been because you know mentally they've been Moved done way past this project <laughs> yeah. exactly, and but the rest of the world has just uh, been enlightened to it. Yeah. So what? So are you are you dead set on diabetes? Like, there's no getting Emily off of this horse until. It's, it's not resolved. getting her sister off of this list. <laughs> I'll need to convince my sister, but I think uh, I can move elsewhere as well. Okay, okay, good. But also, okay. it's good to get experience in different scientific fields as well. Just For let's sure. say another field is making like cardiac cells, so heart cells. You can mm. apply techniques you learn to make pancreatic cells uh, into how you make uh, cardiac cells. 
and I feel like you learn more and uh, the fields can progress a lot better if you learn from each other. So even if I end up in diabetes 20 years from now, I think it would be good to get experience elsewhere. Totally. All right, so Emily's sister listening out there, okay? So <laughs> yeah. she moves on, forgive just her. Prepare, <laughs> she prepare may yourself, come back, prepare. just... just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one of our very first guests was someone who was turning stem cells into heart Oh, that cells. is true, building hearts. That yeah. was our first episode. Right. Whoa, full circle. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, this, this should is the be, end of our second this season. This should be the last Whoa, episode of our that is wild. Season. We did not plan that. Yeah, so. I mean, we planned that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's it's amazing. So this idea of using stem cells mm. to kind of like fix things that to, that are not functioning as they should be, <laughs> like uh, being able to revert get cells from someone's body, revert them into stem cells. Is there is it easier to do that than to just like when you have a baby, just grab some of their placenta and just put it in a library of stem cells? <laughs> is that a thing? Like, or is it just like? Nah, just here, give me your hair. We'll make some stem cells, no biggie. So a lot of the the struggle that we deal with is trying to figure out how to turn the stem cells into the cell type of interest. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this requires on the the quality of stem cell that you start with. So mm. placental cells, it's, it's difficult to determine right now how pluripotent they actually are and how well they can be turned into different cell types. There's a lot of research going into that, um, but my research, we've never used like placental cells. Okay. And so, yeah, we, we're just trying to essentially regrow organs in a dish because let's say you're unable to have enough through cadaveric donors like so mm. we just think that this is an alternative way to make new organs in a dish i mean it's great for people who didn't save their placenta <laughs> and i'm and sure yeah they may have uses for other things but we in, in our lab of doctors and astros lab we just haven't focused in that sure so would this sort of strategy of using stem cells to make tissues be mostly used for like organy type things like skin is pretty easy to get a skin graft right there's no reason do, is there any motivation that you think uh, can think of for figuring out a way to make skin cells from stem cells or that's just like well that's an easy one no there are definitely labs that have looked at uh, making skin cells from stem cells and for patients who experience like a lot of burn or mm. like a high degree oh, burn right. so a lot of their skin has been taken off patients have actually received uh, skin cell transplants from stem cells. Uh, I think there was a paper maybe four years ago that was published and they had turned pluripotent stem cells into skin cells and they had uh, used it to transplant on a boy who had experienced uh, similar wow. burns. So yeah, it's, it's amazing just the different fields that have are present because of the ability of stem cells. So is there a body part that will be especially <laughs> difficult to Ooh. generate from a stem cell? Uh, everyone who makes a specific cell says their cell's the hardest to make. <laughs> yeah. So <Okay. laughs> it's the beta cell, the insulin <laughs> right, cell. <yeah. laughs> Correct answer. Correct answer. Correct. We agree. Yeah. We're push that forward. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I can just imagine like taking a cell that could be anything and just like nudging it down that path all mm. the way to one specific body part. Exactly. Or cell, not even yeah. my body part, just one cell in a body part. But also, like, how much we don't know. That's fascinating, right? Like, you had it down to, like, three tissues, and you're like, mm, this this cell has this protein, but not this protein. Right. I guess that's somehow tied to it, and we don't know what it's doing. But that's it's so fascinating. We always think, I think, 
people outside of the work you're doing, we assume we know what every protein's <laughs> up to and what all the proteins are, but there's so much still to be discovered. Exactly. And even when we started to make insulin cells and when the field started to make insulin cells in 2014 and 2015, they expressed insulin, but they weren't as mature or as functional as a primary mm -hmm. insulin cell. So what I mean by that is the cells that we grew in the lab at the time, they didn't function like the insulin cells that are in right. you or me, assuming that we're healthy. Um, so it's over time that we, one, discovered they weren't as functional as we thought, and then we have to figure out how to make them more functional. So we're always learning about the cells yeah. that we're making. No Very cool. And so where do you see your future, Emily? Are you always going to be in the lab playing with some stem cell or other, or do you think you want to teach, or where do you picture your life in 10 years? I'm not sure exactly right now. Uh, that's what I'm trying to figure out in these next, <laughs> yeah. these next few months and years. I do really enjoy lab work. I do love turning stem cells into different cell types. Uh, so we'll just have to figure out and see what I continue sure. to like in the future. Very good point. You never know, right? Life's, yeah. a, life's a journey. Yeah, I mean, hopefully none of your siblings get sick with anything else. <laughs> I know. And then I'll be like, all right, Emily, got to go back to the lab. That, that will dictate my next uh, career choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, there you go. Oh boy! Wow, very cool. And so you're into like running yeah. and triathlons. Talk talk about what it's like to run a triathlon, because honestly, we, we've not yeah. come close. No. Uh, so in my undergrad, I was I ran for my school, uh, and then when I got injured uh, from running too much. I then started oh. to cross train, which involves biking or swimming. And I figured since I'm running, biking and swimming anyways, I might as well try out a triathlon. <laughs> so they're actually a lot of fun. Uh, they're tricky, uh, but they we are a lot of fun. definitions of fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm glad you enjoy them. <laughs> yeah, they're great. <laughs> Which is your, is there one of the events that you like hate? Like when you're running a triathlon, you're like, oh, this one. Yeah. So my favorite is the run, although it's the most stressful for me. Mm, um, okay. And my least favorite is the bike. I find that so many people in triathlons are really good at the bike, but I, it's definitely oh. not my strength. And you're not allowed to draft off people. So you can't even like tuck behind and yeah really so it, how do they keep that from happening they're like too to, close it, yeah it's like covid rules you have to keep a, a distance from the bike ahead oh, of fascinating. you mm -hmm. and so what are the distances in a triathlon so swimming biking and running i'm pretty so the olympic distance is a 10k run i think it's a 40 uh bike and a one or two k swim my focus is the run I, the bike, I'm pretty sure it's 40, but it could also be 50. Is it in that order too? Run, bike, swim? No, you start with the swim. I think it's for safety reasons, so you're not exhausted and thrown into yeah. the water oh, yeah, at that the makes end. Sense. Yeah, <laughs> Good point. Or you want to cool off at the end. Honestly, I, I would have preferred to swim at the end for that reason as well, just to go for a <laughs> cool off. Uh, but it's swim, then bike, then run. So so you come out, you you just swam. Yeah. You come a out kilometer. Do you just like get in that wet outfit? You just hop on a, a bike? Yeah. So well, you start <laughs> in a wetsuit. So like a full body oh. like thing that's stuck stuck to you. So as you're running, running out of the water, you're supposed to take the wetsuit off as you're running. Oh. I'm not that good. So <laughs> I get to the transition zone. Then I take the wetsuit off. Then you hop on a bike, put on your helmet and stuff. And then after you, uh, and you got to put on running shoes as well. And then you 
drop your bike off and go for a run. Wow. That's amazing. That's very cool. Yeah, so lots of people Good spend time practicing the transition zone. So as you transition from the swim wow. to the bike, bike yeah. to the run, I'm terrible at transition. My dad is like, Emily, <laughs> what were you doing in there? Your makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, and is there like a good time for a, a, a swim to bike transition? Definitely, probably a quarter of the time I take in the transition. <laughs> <laughs> well, taking off a wetsuit and being under pressure to do it and quickly. Put on shoes. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. yeah, shoes while your feet are wet. It's just Ugh. tricky. I remember I had to wear a wetsuit. I did a lot of scuba work for my, my PhD, mm-hmm. and I would have to drive between like two sites sometimes a couple of hours. And I would like, I'm not taking this off because like taking off a wet wetsuit and especially putting a wet wetsuit on yeah it's not it's really it's not happening. honestly sometimes i feel like the hardest part of the triathlon is putting on the wetsuit at the beginning <laughs> i get i get help for that part yeah it's it should be great. a quadrathlon really honestly i think so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotta time this part too <laughs> oh oh my gosh well thank you so much emily thank you for doing the the hard work you're doing obviously great research and hope you keep uh, yeah, chasing those passions stuff well thanks yeah. a lot for having me it was great to talk to you awesome wow thank you. that's incredible yeah uh, stem cells like it feels like treating the body with stem cells just like it's like when you your car breaks here mm. we go analogy time a car breaks and you're like okay i could just get a part from the junkyard and replace that part yeah or i could just go to the car manufacturer and be like i need this part and you get mm. the actual part that you need and so stem cells is just like hey let's just go to the body get us grab a stem cell grow a new piece <laughs> slap it back in you're good to go well i think of like that food generator from star trek i know Ooh, there's a word yeah. what's it called replicator the replicator right you just like i want exactly this and it just takes this goo i imagine is yeah, in that machine yeah. <laughs> some sort of goo yeah like a 3d printer <laughs> i just sort of have this i didn't watch a lot of star trek but i remember one episode where like this amazing sunday comes out so like that's what i'm picturing right we're calling this but it's like the same goo that'll make a sunday or a steak yeah. or whatever you want right yeah or a liver or a pancreas <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, amazing. Very cool. It is very cool. This is the the research that's being done now it does feel like science fiction in some ways. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I, I know. I wish I wish I would have heard I wish this podcast existed when I was a young youngin. I had no idea these things were happening when I got into science. Well let's hope youngins are listening to this. <laughs> okay, youngins out there. <laughs> well it's time for bed, youngins. <laughs> let's say thank you to Emily. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your facts about the moon. Yeah. I'll celebrate Moon Appreciation Day thinking of you. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for all the winter discussion we had. <laughs> And the gum fact. And gum fact. That was the proper fact. <laughs> and the winter stands out more. Great. Well, thank you for listening. Thank uh, you, send, listeners. Send them out on our socials, Vinny. If you're interested in following Learn Real Good on social media, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at LRG Pod. That's LRG Pod. And if you're interested in being a guest on Learn Real Good, send us an email at learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> if you have some cool science to share. <laughs> Don't be dissuaded, by the way. He (laughs) mentioned only cool cool sides, please. All right, that's enough. Bye, Vinny. Bye bye. Bye, learners.